Hello and welcome to What the Heck, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. This part usually comes after the opening music, but it's slightly different at the moment. After a busy period, I got very behind with the podcast. I don't want to end it prematurely like I did last year, though. To catch up with the original schedule, I'm going to be recording some double feature episodes that include a main episode and a creature feature in them. Each episode will have a longer title so I can keep up with my episode numbers, and these shouldn't last too long. So, enjoy the longer episodes for the time being. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to What the Heck, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. Every week we look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, and then look at the theories surrounding it. I'm your host Glenn, and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things, because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can, and references are given at the end of the episode. This week's episode is a science episode. We're looking at what happens inside a black hole. Let's start today's episode with an explanation of black holes. They're not really empty space. A black hole is a large amount of matter that's packed into a very small area. NASA says that the matter is a star that's 10 times larger than our sun, jammed into a sphere that's roughly the size of New York City. The result of this amount of matter in such a small space is a gravitational field that's so strong that nothing can escape it. Not even light can get out of a black hole. The idea of black holes isn't a particularly recent one. The idea that there are things out there that swallow even light have been around for centuries. The most famous example of this is from Einstein's theory of general relativity. Einstein's theory predicted black holes and showed that when a massive star dies, it leaves a remnant, its core. This core is small and dense, And if the mass of this core is more than roughly three times the mass of our sun, equations show that the force of the gravity will overwhelm all the other forces nearby and produce a black hole. We can't directly see black holes using standard equipment. Scientists can't see them with their X-ray telescopes or their radiation-detecting equipment. We're able to see the effects they have on their surroundings, though. When a black hole passes through something, we can see it get sucked inward in a process called accretion. We can see it best on stars and clouds of interstellar matter. Accretion begins with the destruction of mass before it's drawn into the black hole proper. This attraction causes the matter to heat up, which causes X-ray emissions that can be seen radiating into space. 
Newer discoveries have given evidence that black holes can have quite dramatic effects on the things around them. They've been recorded emitting powerful bursts of gamma rays, devouring nearby stars, helping to grow some new stars, and even preventing the growth of other stars. Black holes mostly form after a large star has died. The remnants of a supernova explosion help to form it. As long as the mass is large enough, theoretically, no force can prevent the star from collapsing from its own gravity. Something strange happens during this collapse, though. As the surface of the star reaches an event horizon, which is an imaginary surface, time begins to slow down and eventually stop on the star. Once this happens, the star can't collapse anymore and freezes as a collapsing object. But this isn't the only way a black hole can be formed. Stellar collisions can create them too. In December 2004, NASA's SWIFT telescope observed some powerful flashes of gamma ray bursts. These were powerful flashes of light. The Hubble Space Telescope later recorded data from the afterglow of the event, and these observations led astronomers to conclude that the gamma ray bursts were the result of a black hole and a neutron star colliding, which produced another black hole. In terms of size, there are really only two size categories of black holes. The countless black holes made from the remnants of stars are called stellar black holes and generally have 10 to 24 times the amount of mass our sun does. These can be seen sometimes when another star draws close enough for some of its matter to be caught in the gravity of the hole, which throws out x-rays as the new matter is incorporated. Most stellar black holes are difficult to detect and it's estimated that there could be billions in the Milky Way alone. The other size of black hole is the supermassive black hole. These are so large that they are millions of times larger than our sun at least. Astronomers believe that supermassive black holes live at the centre of almost all of the large galaxies in the universe, including our own. They can be detected by watching for their effects on nearby stars and gases. What about a black hole in the middle of these two sizes? Well, historically, astronomers believed that no mid-sized black holes existed. Recent evidence from the Chandra Telescope, XMM-Newton and the Hubble Telescope have provided evidence to suggest that they might exist. It's believed that the formation of a supermassive black hole involves a chain reaction of star collisions in compact star clusters, resulting in the build-up of massive stars. These all collapse at once to form intermediate mass black holes. The clusters sink to the centre of a galaxy, where the intermediate mass black holes merge together to form a supermassive black hole. This means that there are mid-sized black holes. They just don't last as long as stellar black holes or a supermassive black hole. Now, I already said about how black holes were predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity. The theory states that matter warps time and space, creating gravity. Black holes, as we know them, are incredibly dense points of matter, which causes their intense gravitational pull. But once we look a little deeper, the theory is really put to the test. 
The centre of a black hole, called a singularity, is where things get complicated. Nobody can really agree what happens inside, and the forces inside are so great that things get a little fuzzy. Einstein's theory of general relativity says that any matter pulled into a black hole should be destroyed. Quantum mechanics refutes this theory, though, saying that this can't possibly happen. Because of these two varying theories, black holes are a subject that are full of theories. It's a playground for astrophysicists and mathematicians who are trying to make both of the major theories work together. With that out of the way, should we look at some of the theories of what might happen inside a black hole? Black holes, huge points of condensed mass. Their gravitational pull is so great that anything that comes close is sucked into the singularity at the centre. But what happens inside of them? The first thing we need to talk about with this is what would happen to a person if they fell inside a black hole. The process that happens is called spaghettification. The gravity of the black hole would simultaneously compress your entire body, but also stretch it. This happens in a stellar black hole, and the effects of a supermassive black hole is a lot less horrific. In the larger black hole, the effects would begin past the event horizon. Once past it, nobody would ever be able to see you, because the light is drawn inside the hole. You could still see out though. Spaghettification doesn't really happen here. The gravitational pull is much stronger, but the stretching tidal force is lower. No stretching, but there's also no way out. Possibly. This leads to the theory of white holes. This is a pretty major theory. It suggests that black holes and white holes are opposite. A black hole sucks things in, and a white hole spits things out. They're believed to be connected by interdimensional tunnels known as wormholes. A secondary theory to this is that black holes turn into white holes over time. Not a short time though, we're talking billions of years. Inside a black hole, that wouldn't matter though. Due to the time compression of a black hole, it would only take a matter of milliseconds. In 1974, Stephen Hawking theorised that black holes could radiate energy away from themselves. This radiation is known as Hawking radiation. The theory is that a black hole leaks energy over time, but very slowly. Theoretically, this means that black holes can dissipate over time through these emissions, but they would take longer than any of our lifetimes to do so, to the point where the timescale would be beyond our comprehension. I think it's really important to note that media depictions of a black hole are, for the most part, correct. The effects of them are thoroughly researched, but they often miss something very vital. Spaghettification is something that scientists agree will happen, but it's very likely that a person would no longer be alive when the process begins. 
As I said earlier, black holes release huge amounts of radiation across space. This amount of radiation is very likely to kill a person. So, films like Interstellar depict black holes correctly, even using the white hole theory in their depiction. But they don't depict how the radiation would affect a person. As it stands, scientists still can't agree on what happens inside a black hole. There just isn't enough evidence. Whatever you do though, don't try going into one. At best, you'll be stuck. The information from this episode came from the NASA website. The theories from this episode came from BBC Earth, the Union University and the Royal Museums Greenwich. References and links are posted on social media if you want to take a look. The link tree is available in the episode description so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your preferred platform. Patreon is still unchanged with a £3 here if you want to support me, but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too. So, let's take a look at the creature feature. Hello and welcome to What the Heck's Creature Feature, where we look at folklore and cryptids. Every Saturday we look at the history of a creature before even describing it and looking at theories of what the creature might be. I'm your host Glenn, and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can, and references are given at the end of the episode. This week's episode is a folklore episode. We're looking at the Mongolian death worm. As the creature's name suggests, this week we were in Mongolia. In the vast deserts of the country, a monstrous beast resides. Stories of this monster have created a reputation for it that has piqued interest in cryptozoology, adventurers and folklore enthusiasts alike. Known locally as the Olgoi Korkoi, which translates to large intestine worm, the Mongolian death worm has been integral to Mongolian folklore for centuries. There have been numerous sightings of this creature. Locals and tourists have reported witnessing the creature in the Gobi Desert, which is one of the largest deserts in the world, and also a remote and hostile region that offers extreme temperatures and arid conditions. These accounts often depict the worm emerging from below the sand and swiftly attacking before burrowing underground again. In the 1920s, paleontologist Roy Chapman Andrews received a special request from Mongolian officials. He was about to head on a series of expeditions to the Gobi Desert. The Mongolian premier at the time asked him to capture a Mongolian death worm for the government. Whilst Andrews had never seen the creature, he knew about him. There were lots of stories about him. He promised to capture one using long steel forceps and wearing protective glasses to protect himself. This was on the assumption that Andrews would encounter the creature. 
The Premier and Chapman concluded their meeting on friendly terms. Chapman didn't encounter any Mongolian death worms, but he wasn't the only person to go on expeditions to the Gobi Desert though. Cryptozoologists and adventurers alike have made their way to the treacherous area to look for this creature, but nobody seems to have found anything. Some researchers suggest that this could be due to the worm's ability to dissolve organic matter, leaving no trace of its victims. In 2005, a British cryptozoologist and author, Richard Freeman, ventured into the Gobi Desert to look for the creature. His expedition didn't find it, but they did document testimonies from locals and collected soil samples to shed some light on the creature. It's difficult to go through sightings of the creature this time. The speed with which it's said to attack would make it almost impossible to get away from, meaning that anyone who saw it would be dead before they could say anything. With the basics out of the way, should we talk about its appearance? The Mongolian deathworm lives in the sands of the Gobi Desert. Its fearsome presence hasn't stopped adventurers and cryptozoologists searching for it. But what does it look like? I bet that you, like me at the beginning of the research phase for this episode, are thinking about a huge worm that lives under the sands of the desert. I have some bad news. It isn't. In many depictions, the Mongolian deathworm is, in fact, a huge worm like the ones featured in Dune. But British biologist Carl Schuker described it in his book, The Unexplained, an illustrated guide to the world's paranormal mysteries from 2002. He explained that it's said to resemble a large, fat worm that can grow up to one metre or three feet in length. It's red in colour, with spike-like projections at both ends. According to the legends, the Mongolian deathworm can kill in several ways. One of these is spitting a stream of corrosive venom that is lethal to any living thing it touches and can potentially dissolve organic matter. If the venom doesn't do the trick, the Mongolian deathworm is said to be able to electrocute victims from a distance. That's really it for the Mongolian deathworm though. Let's take a look at the theories. Mongolian deathworm grows to be about three feet in length, but is incredibly adept at killing. What do people think it is? As is usual in folklore episodes, we fall straight into the real and not real categories. Looking at the legends and the way that locals will actively attempt to avoid them during rainy seasons, we have some tentative evidence that they're real. However, we have much more evidence of them never being found by the many expeditions to the area. Many skeptics argue that the Mongolian deathworm doesn't exist due to lack of scientific evidence. This is usually the case in folklore episodes, but something strange is going on here. 
Some people refute these claims due to the beliefs of the local people. But there may be more to this. People have suggested that the Mongolian death worm is actually related to other creatures in the animal kingdom. Some suggest that the worm is related to the longhorn beetle, known for being able to defend itself well. There are some who also think that they're related more closely to reptiles. The name worm in this case is believed to be an English translation. Some people think it's a type of snake like a sand boa or a type of limbless lizard known as a worm lizard. However, the details for the Mongolian death worm don't quite match either of these choices. Snakes aren't able to cause electric shocks, although some can spit venom. Their ability to do so can cause blindness, but cannot corrode biological matter. This theory has a little weight to it, but not enough to stick fully. There are worm species that are known to live in sand instead of soil, like the giant beach worm in Australia. Worm circulatory systems are also designed to allow them to absorb oxygen through their skin, where it gets carried through the rest of the body. This allows them to grow to sizes similar to the Mongolian death worm's length. It's important to remember that the Gobi Desert is immense in size, and there are potentially species that haven't been discovered yet. The Mongolian death worm itself could be a kind of sandworm whose defence mechanisms have been greatly exaggerated. Regardless of that, if you're planning a trip there, it's worth being careful out on the sand. You never know what might pop up out of it. History and description from this week's creature came from How Stuff Works and All That's Interesting. The theories from this episode came from the previous articles, Life Science and Astonishing Legends. References and links are posted on social media if you want to take a look. The link tree is available in the episode description so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your preferred platform. Patreon is still unchanged with a £3 tier if you want to support me but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too.